0: is me myself and disaster the show all about disasters with a human focus from hurricanes to humanitarian issues we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness response and recovery over to you
1: josh and andrew And welcome back to me, myself and Disaster. The show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Asia in many ways is the center of the world, but also highly exposed to disaster risk. The success of any global agenda, such as the Sendai Framework, depends on the success of the Asia-Pacific region and the countries within it. Today, we're looking at how the Asian Development Bank funds are used to support disaster risk reduction activities across the region, in recognition of the growing climate change risk. Andrew, let's unlock the bank vault and better understand the ADB. Who's joining us on the show today?
2: Josh, today we're joined by Steve Goldfinch from the Asian Development Bank. Steve is a senior disaster risk management specialist who works across the bank supporting disaster resilient development and recovery. Before joining the ADB in 2018, he worked for over a decade with the United Nations in New York, Dhaka and Kampala. Steve is originally from Australia, where he completed a master's degree in peace and conflict studies at the University of Sydney and a bachelor's degree in Asian studies and political science. We'll be asking Steve about the role of the bank in reducing disaster risk in the Asia-Pacific region. Let's deep dive with ADB
1: and Steve Goldfinch here on the Asia-Pacific's Leading Disaster Podcast.
2: Steve Goldfinch joins us now from Manila. Steve, welcome to the show. Great, thanks for having me. So we know uh, that disasters are increasing due to a range of factors, particularly in Asia and the Pacific. Communities are often highly exposed to disasters and the Asian Development Bank has assessed that we need to invest $1.7 trillion per year in infrastructure in areas including power and transport just to maintain economic growth, eradicate poverty and respond to climate change. So can you take us through the role of the Asian Development Bank and what they do?
0: Sure. So um, we provide both um, finance and and knowledge to our member countries. So we have 68 member countries, 49 in the region. And um, we provide loans, uh, technical assistance, grants and equity investments um, to promote social and economic development. so it's really about uh, us working with with our member countries, our developing member countries, to finance their um, their priorities, their development priorities, and and provide solutions. Um, so that could be anything from roads and and renewable energy to education and health. And from a DRM perspective, it's about making sure that we integrate. Um, disaster risk into into all of those investments um, to make sure that they're resilient.
2: And just to understand who, who funds and where do you get the funds and the capital from for the ADB to do their work?
0: Yeah, so um, as I said, ADB is owned by its, its 68 member countries and they all have a shareholding. And then um, ADB raises uh, money on the capital markets um, primarily. Uh, and then we do have, um, uh, we receive also some funding from um, from countries, uh, for example, we have the Asian Development Fund, which provides um, grant and concessional resources to our um, less developed countries. Um, so it's a combination of, of money from from our own resources and then money from our member um, countries.
2: And just to be clear, there's no sort of ADB, ATMs, you're not like an actual bank you can walk in and get a home loan from. <laughs> like
0: no, <it's-> no. I- <laughs> No, it's uh, it's just uh, we work with um, with sovereigns, so with ministries of finance and, and planning and development. Um, we do have a private sector arm, but there's but there's no ATMs. <laughs>
1: Damn. <laughs> and To be clear, ADB are not sponsoring the show. We're not getting money out of the bank for this one. Stephen, <laughs> um, one thing I'm really interested in in, in talking to you about and, and and helping our listeners understand that, you know, ADB don't just go about their work in a willy-nilly way. You know, there's a real sense of strategy uh, and really kind of understanding the concepts behind where you invest money and, and where you kind of direct funds. And I know recently you've established the Strategy 2030 to really focus your efforts as a bank on responding to the needs of Asia Pacific. And, and, you know, some of those topics are looking at, you know, how do you eradicate poverty, um, you know, building resilience and, and how you kind of create a sustainable region into the future. Can you kind of take us through that strategy and, and some of those key components that you're really looking to tackle over the next, uh, you know, 10 or, or, or so years? Yeah. So, the
0: The the kind of headline for the strategy is um, helping the region achieve a prosperous, inclusive, resilient and sustainable Asia and the Pacific. But what that actually, you know, how we do that is through these seven um, what we call operational priorities. And that covers everything from um, remaining, addressing the remaining poverty and reducing inequalities, um, gender equality. uh, As you mentioned, climate change, um, disaster resilience and environment, uh, making cities more livable, which is really um, critical for, for the region promoting rural rural development and food security. And um, then there's uh, fostering governance and uh, institutional capacity and um, regional cooperation and integration. Um, All of that said, it's really about, um, you know, we're really driven by what our member countries, our developing member countries are doing. And so our strategy is very much aligned to the SDGs. The SDGs were developed by by, by our member countries right at the UN along with with, um, with the other um, UN members. And it provides really clear kind of guidance. So we have the, the big picture there and then it's about okay what are the particular um, priorities for this region, which we've built around those seven those seven operational priorities I mentioned and then how does that then kind of cascade down into a particular country's development needs? So there's kind of a thread all the way through there.
1: Yeah, I was just about to say, like, obviously, uh, as you were saying just before, as a, as a bank, you're you're kind of uh, uh, owned by your, your, your member countries and, and they contribute to that. Is that, in a sense, that strategy kind of developed in collaboration with them in terms of when you when you come to the table and you look at going, you know, what do we need to be doing as a region? Is that collectively, that, that, that input collectively coming from those countries?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we have a, 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 a oversight structure. The the countries are there on on our board um, and um, they provide that kind of high level guidance. And then obviously we have, you know, we've been around 50 plus years. So we have really close relationship with, with governments where, We have presence in almost all of our developing member countries Mm. Um, so yeah it's really about that dialogue um, and and recognizing what um, their needs are and and responding to that.
2: So we mentioned earlier around the strategy and and some of the key areas of focus can you share with us more details around how the ADB will tackle the the disaster and climate change part of this I know um, there are a lot of initiatives in there and looking at um, like the number of I guess programs that are being rolled out how does the the ADB sort of see the the next few years with an increasing climate risk and, and sort of plans for that?
0: Yeah, we positioned ourselves as, um, as Asia and the Pacific's climate bank, and I think that really is in recognition of the huge challenge that the region faces um, from, from climate and disaster risk. Um, and, uh, you know, that didn't come from nowhere. I think we were the first MDB to set um, a climate investment target back in um for 2030, um, we've had this operational plan and framework in place and we're about to launch a climate change action plan. Um, and, um, you know, we, we disclose all the project level data f- um, for climate projects. We're accredited to the GCF, the Green Climate Fund. I think um, so a colleague mentioned that we have around 8% of the total portfolio there. So it's really about, you know, to provide climate finance um, to, to our country. So it's really um, front and center of, of what we're doing. Um, from a drm perspective um you know we we finance everything from flood control early warning systems nature-based solutions water resources um you know resilient infrastructure disastrous financing it's all there um and and in significant amounts um i think back in um i think 2017 to 2021 uh we did over two billion um you know of, of projects directly uh, reduce disaster risk um, and that you know included everything from the institutional staff to community preparedness to strengthening financial um, preparedness so it's really broad um, but but I think we recognize also that in all of our work we need to now account for climate and disaster risk mm. um, so we have um, introduced screening um, to make sure both at the concept phase when we are kind of designing the initial project as well as before it goes um, to be approved and then implemented looking at you know How does this asset um interact with climate disaster risks how can we um, mitigate those what kind of um, measures do we need to introduce um recognizing as well that it's not just about the asset anymore right it's really about having that relationship with the system and how it, it sits um more broadly so yeah it's um it's really important part of part of our work now
2: and so you're a bank and while you don't have ATMs, you must have economists and financial modelers and, and actuaries and those sorts of things. And, and if, say, you're putting in and funding a flood levy or um, some sort of other mitigation measure... Do you do sort of some sort of economic modelling to work out the return on investment and say, well, this, this wall is going to cost a billion dollars but the actual sort of economic stimulus it might generate or protect the, the town or the, or the community will be, say, $3, million, $3 billion. Is that
0: kind of, and how, how is that work undertaken kind of at ADB? Yep, so all um, projects go through uh, a feasibility um, a feasibility process. Um, economic return is an important part of that. Obviously, there are different rates depending on the, on the type of infrastructure, but it's critical that, um that that's understood up front right because we are a bank mm. countries pay back uh, are paying back the loans and we need to make sure that the asset that they're they're investing in is is going to be um you know it's going to fulfill its its uh, life cycle and and that um, we account for the climate and disaster risks of today, as well as what we expect over the life cycle of, of the asset. I mean, that's, that's really important. I think we've come a long way with the power of modeling, um, and an assessment. So it's available and I mean, we use it, uh, and we encourage our, our developing member countries to use it in their own, you know, self-finance projects as well, making sure that we use all the tools that are available, um, to ensure that, you know, these assets are resilient.
2: And, and you imagine you're a bank and, the, the countries have to pay the money back. So how does it work if say a developing country is, is loaned a billion dollars to build uh, some sort of flood levy and then they have 25 years to pay that back but the actual, not, they're not making an investment in terms of there's a financial gain of building that wall but it's almost like mitigating, I guess, a potential disaster and economic catastrophe if they don't build the wall and the, and the community gets washed away. So they then spend 25 years and they basically pay that back over time or, or how does that work but they eventually pay it back?
0: Yeah, I mean, we we do provide grants um, or a combination of grant and and concessional finance and regular finance. It really depends on the on the um, the economic status of the country, right? That's de- there's a formula that determines sure, that. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's about providing you know some infrastructure. You know, like you said that example you gave, you know, flood risk management, the the impact and the benefits. Um, it's not going to necessarily generate uh, an Generate an income like a road would, right? A toll road, for example, or a port. There's going to be port fees, um, but nevertheless, it's critical for for the wider system um, and for protecting communities. So that's you know that's factored in.
1: I, I think that's I think it's really interesting because I know it's been a bit of a conversation locally here in Australia is around okay where uh, if we're going to be investing money. You know, we need to be doing it responsibly and we need to be doing it with a with a future focused uh, kind of lens over over the top of what we're doing. And I guess we're talking here at that kind of micro level in terms of projects and, and, and funding projects. But what's your view, Steve, in terms of that broader kind of the industry in terms of investment? How do we start like actually shaping and shifting that to move towards a greener economy? Because I know that we obviously have a, a large range of, of banks and, and financial uh, investment uh, you know, firms and that's still obviously pouring a lot of money into projects that in a sense are taking us backwards in, in terms of climate and, and, and tackling that or in a sense are investing into projects that are actually increasing disaster risk for communities. What, what's your views on terms of the broader industry in terms of how do we actually start to tackle some of those issues?
0: Yeah, the, the key there really is to make sure that we're, we're assessing these projects for risk, right, and understanding yeah. what the implications are. And I think definitely, you know, for, for an ADB project, that's part of the process, um, part of the due diligence that we do.
2: Uh, yeah. So
0: it's, it's there. Um, I think for some developing member countries, it's about making – helping them to improve, build their capacity and, and improve their systems. Um, mm. Things like building codes, um, you know, um, um, land use planning, you know, these kind of nuts and bolts of, of good development that underpin the investments that come later. Right. So yep. it's really about working with, and, you know, working with countries over the long term. it's not, it's, none of these are quick fixes. And I think, you know, we see it in Australia with what happened in Lismore and, you know, understanding that when you live in a, a, a floodplain yes there is protection available but then you know there are limits to that and of course climate change is now having an impact on return periods which is increasing uncertainty um and then you do have that that cost piece right how much you're able to to spend um the cost benefit or is it you know in that in that scenario is it better to provide other types of support i.e moving mm-hmm. people and compensating them or you know or or is it, in fact, better to to raise a levy and understanding all of that? And I think, you know, the good thing is because of the improvements in modelling and assessment, we can make these informed decisions now. Mm. There's still a degree of uncertainty, especially with these outlier events, um, where you know you see massive precipitation or um, unexpected, um, you know, hazards that are kind of off, off the charts. But in general, I think we we do have a good idea about um, about where you know, where the return is on investments.
1: Yeah, so so on that on that notion of knowing where the return on investments are, um, and I know Andrew and I have spoken a lot, and Andrew and I over the last couple of years have spent a lot of time around the Asia Pacific region, traveling around and and listening to stories and seeing firsthand some of the challenges that this region has, uh, and given that it is so disaster prone, how do you actually get to a point where you make make a decision around what projects to fund and and what not to fund? Because I would almost imagine that that in a sense there is that much risk in the Asia. Pacific region that it would almost be over-prescribed is that something that you as as adb kind of make a prioritization or, or priorities or is it member countries that come on board is how do you actually make that hard decision of what you will fund and what
0: you will not fund so the country decides on what their priorities are and yeah. then um you know it's up to then we have a dialogue around whether we're able to provide the finance whether the business case stands up you know what are the i mean that comes up during the feasibility um what what are the um, you know the parameters, how much investment is needed. Um, you know, is it in line with our policies that our board has set? So you know, there are some things that we're not able to fund um, for obvious reasons. So you know, that's you know, even if a country asked, that's that's not going to be possible, right? But then, um, in terms of looking at an asset and whether it's viable or not, that's done through that risk that risk screening and that assessment process, um, and doing all that work upfront, um, and and understanding, um, if it is a good investment, right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but, but a lot of it is really driven by, um, country demand. And yeah. as I said, in the beginning, you know, we, we finance, um, social and economic development. That's, that's what we're there to do. Um, so it's about, you know, um, and we're not also there, you know, we're not the only um, provider of finance, right? So countries are able to, to also go to the market or to go to other partners, um, to find the right the right solution for them.
2: I was wanted to ask as well, so you're working with member countries and we had a, a guest on the show a couple of years ago who worked in the Nicobar Islands and there was a massive tsunami that went through there and they were pretty untouched until the tsunami went through and then they discovered Coca-Cola, TV, mobile phones and it really changed the place completely and there's a whole sort of um, discussion we had around donated goods and the challenge of outside help. What's the level of engagement that ADB has in some of these communities? Like, so you're basically gonna build a, a new road or, a, or, or build a, a mitigation strategy for a flood, for example, or a tsunami wall. What sort of engagement happens with the local community to make sure it's, I guess, suitable for, for implementation or is that something that the member country looks after?
0: Yeah, no, so it's done together. Um, part of the process, once a, a project is, is in the design phase, we have our safeguards policy and that prescribes um, a number of standards or, or guides on a number of areas for, for engagement, including with community and affected um, affected parties. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really about making sure that there's a collaborative process um, in the design and then making sure that, you know, stakeholders are, are consulted and, um, and then having redress mechanisms where they need to be as well. So, so that communities are able to, to make sure that their views are heard as well.
1: Is, there ability, is is there an ability for ADB to i guess lean in as well cuz I, I would imagine that obviously across asia pacific you you obviously have a range of countries uh in terms of varying levels of of you know social statuses and and economic statuses and and we know some of some of some of these small developing nations as well have conflict issues going on domestic conflict issues going on how how do you in a sense in a in a country that's really struggling to just Survive, in a sense, you know, put the basic things on the table for their for their for their countries. How do you approach some of these conversations around um, kind of moving them from the here and now to kind of really thinking more of that future focused around future investment? You know, investing in things that I guess you're not necessarily going to see the benefits straight away, but having the confidence to invest in those, knowing that the modeling and and that is going to, in a sense, protect them down the track. How do you engage with some of those countries?
0: So the process is, um, you know, we have these uh, country partnership strategy strategies, and these are developed uh, every five years. So mm. basically, we sit down, we dialogue with the country around what their development needs and uh, priorities are, and then work out um, where our, you know, value add is and how we can support the country to to achieve those.
2: And reading through the ADB's uh, Strategy 2030 document, it's really interesting to see the actual amount of carbon dioxide emissions from Asia is growing significantly compared to the rest of the world. Like relative, it's almost double or triple in terms of what it was a few years ago. And I guess we're in the center of the world. It's where everything, industry is happening and that sort of thing. What What's your approach in ADB to, to carbon emissions? And I mean... In terms of funding projects, is that a, is that a key element of um, any sort of new roads or any sort of new, I guess, features that you're funding to make sure they are low carbon and what they're going to produce is going to minimise carbon into the future?
0: Yeah, all the all the development banks have come together um, following the Paris Paris Agreement and um, now have what we call Paris aligned alignment, um, and that's really addressing what you you raised there. So how do we ensure that the majority of our all, uh, all of our sovereign investments are Paris-aligned, and then um, you know, making sure that we are supporting countries to meet their um, their commitments under the Paris Agreement, um, and and to make that transition as well that that transition towards um, a green um, and renewable economy. So um, you're right. I mean, they say that climate change is is going to be won or lost, uh, but you know, in Asia and the Pacific, and I think that's true. Um, that's that's really why we've positioned ourselves um, to, to be that climate bank um, to the region, so that they're able to come to us for those solutions and for that climate finance. Um, you know, countries are still going to need roads, um, so it's about how do we um, ensure that they are, are built uh, effectively, and and you know, how do we ensure that systems are there to reduce carbon emissions? Obviously, you know, there's a lot that can be done in the energy energy space um you know transitioning vehicles to electric and um, decarbonizing um you know sort of just transition and that's all of you know that's definitely areas that we're that we're working with our uh, developing member countries on
1: I think that's really interesting because I know there's this whole conversation in climate change around, you know, Western societies, developed countries that have obviously gone through that development phase and now are prospering from that, you know, in a sense are imposing rules on countries that are just doing the same as what other, you know, what developed countries have done, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, you know, 30, 40 years ago. How like how do you balance that from an investment potential to kind of go? And I think you were just touching on it then to kind of go. You got to maintain investment, like you want them to progress. You got to continue to build things, but in a sense, we know we're in a real fragile moment at the moment. How like how do you how do you balance that need for investment versus obviously climate change?
0: Because I uh, dare you say that can be a tricky balance sometimes. Yeah, no, I think. You know, from ADB's side, it's about how do we support the adaptation and mitigation, right? And part of that mm. is scaling up investments um, in adaptation and resilience. So um, we have commitments to, to do that. Um, I think the the, the target is um, cumulative financing of $9 billion between t- 2019 and 2024. But, you know, it's about making sure that our operations are aligned to the goals of the Paris Agreement and then expanding investments in resilience and adaptation, um, you know, Helping the region to lower its its carbon footprint and 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 move economies towards you know more sustainable models. So it's it's a process you know that we work with our countries on because it's a shared it's a shared ambition. Yeah. Um, it's not something you know that we're pushing. Right, countries yeah. have committed to it, and then they need partners to help them achieve achieve those commitments. And that's that's where we come in with uh, with climate finance and with the solutions and measures that um, can help them reach that.
1: I think this really interesting comment around. Um, and I think you're 100% right around, you know, the battle will be won or lost for climate change in that Asia-Pacific region. Given that you're kind of situated, what's the state of play? Where are we at the moment? Do you feel like we're losing the battle at the moment or do you think we're winning or, or it's kind of too early too early to say?
0: Well, you know, I work in disasters. So, um, you know, the, <laughs> the picture has been, um, especially recently, you know, the floods in Pakistan and um, the heat waves and uh you know there's been a lot going on this year uh, mm. and i think if anything it really just highlights why we need to, to make to take more climate action um you know so many so many communities i was just in bangladesh last week um i was you know work uh, on the coastal coastal belt there so many communities are vulnerable to to sea level rise in the long term but they're also vulnerable now to to inundation to um storms storm surge um floods i mean it's you know it's it's all there so you know our focus is very much on you know how do we support countries to build that resilience and and how do Mm. we do it in in all of our projects you know where we can integrating those considerations making sure that they're accounting for risk um and then all the stuff that we do outside of the project cycle right so working with with governments on capacity building putting in systems in, in place to be able to to make make sure they make the risk informed decisions that are needed in in their everyday investments as well, right? Outside of, of a loan with ADB, but also how do we support them um, in their in their day to day work?
2: And I'm really really kind of the sense you're in Bangladesh and you must travel. I know you travel a lot around Asia Pacific. What sort of projects you're currently working on at the moment? Is there anything you can share with us for our listeners? At, at uh, I guess in the in the pipeline uh, underway at the moment?
0: Yeah, actually, um, an exciting project that our colleagues are working on. Um, I was in Tonga and I, I learned about it so and I, I think it's really interesting so it's a it's a multi hazard um, disaster risk assessment for the for the Tongatapu island where the capital um, Nukulofa is situated and basically what they've done um, and I think it provides a model um, for for other cities or for other islands um, they've done a really detailed in depth analysis um, of climate and disaster risks and then really focused on what does that mean for infrastructure, existing infrastructure, for for services, and for people? And then they've overlaid all these different hazard and climate scenarios, and of course different time uh, time periods as well. And so, the government is able to look at, um, you know, what what does um, investment look like, or what does my city look like potentially in you know in twenty forty. Um, and then what decisions do I need to then consider now given that infrastructure, you know, the life cycle of a, of a, of a bridge might be 40 years, right? So mm. how do I then, or if I'm going to transition, if I recognize that, um, you know, this area is very vulnerable to sea level rise, you know, probably, um, you know, future investment needs, I mean, future investment needs to factor that in, right? So how then can I transition to another area by building, service delivery you know schools and hospitals you know further away from the coast or or whatever it is so the project is really um or the tool this this multi-hazard risk assessment i think really is a a tangible way of supporting governments understand um climate and disaster risk today but also tomorrow and then the financial kind of physical impacts that it's going to have um, and I think it also it's a great tool to communicate with with citizens, right? Because we were talking before about affected communities mm. and um, making sure that they're on board with with decisions. And so that this this tool, I think, can really support um, communities to understand as well. Because for some countries, you know, climate the impacts of climate change are going to mean you know really significant changes, you know, compared to today. So I think this tool can really help that, that longer-term
2: transition. Yeah, cool. That's, I'm keen to see that progress actually. That'd be interesting. Well,
1: well I think it's, it's it's a fascinating tool because it's something that I know that we talk domestically a lot uh, uh, in terms of disasters. It's really around like how do you sway or how do you change people's risk perception and how do you kind of articulate that narrative so people actually understand what the cost of inaction and, and actually can really understand the whole picture and make the right decisions. I think the problem is is when you come to disasters, they, they are highly complex and there's so many inputs and and outputs that come into these situations. Sometimes it's, you know, it's paralysis by analysis, but I really like that idea of kind of really distilling it down into a picture that people can kind of visualize and understand, you know, the cost of inaction. And if you don't invest here, what your city would look like in in, in 40 years, you know, that, that that's gonna drive a, a lot of people to actually kind of think about it and make decisions. I, uh, I understand as well, Steve, um, obviously, we've talked a lot about, you know, preparing and investing for the future and, and mitigation, but ADB has a role or has an arm that can actually assist during disasters and emergencies. Is is, is that correct? And, and in terms of what does that, like, what does your, your assistance look like within a disaster or within an emergency across the Asia-Pacific?
0: Yeah, so we have a, a disaster and emergency assistance policy, and basically it means that um, we're able to provide uh, support to to countries post post disaster. So um, that could mean um, emergency assistance loans for reconstructing you know um, damaged infrastructure. Um, we also have uh, an instrument um, contingent disaster uh, financing, which basically means that a country undertakes um, policy reforms ahead of a disaster, and then when or if the disaster happens then money is is already pre-arranged right so it mm-hmm. provides them with really rapid liquidity and then they can they can use that money for expanding social um social protection or um, using it for the recovery um you know whatever the whatever the needs are so i think we try to provide um support across the kind of continuum and also recognize it recognizing that countries are able to access different different pots of money work with different partners so how do we kind of make sure that um we're coordinated and it's it's you know it's referred to as a risk of aid approach, right? So looking at mm. different different types of financing at the different stages of a disaster. Um so yeah, we provide um, unfortunately we we provide a lot of um post disaster support, usually in this in the sectors. Um so you know where we have um where we've been working with a country in, in energy or transport, generally that's where we'll we'll be best placed to support a, a recovery. So yeah, you know, it's a it's an important a, an important stream of, of support that's provided.
1: I think I think that's fascinating. So I think for us here in Australia, obviously having quite a mature framework to deal with disasters, especially from a funding perspective, you know, it's hard to put yourself in that mindset to go, well, you know, there is no money, there is no, um, you know, uh, resilience fund, or there's no kind of disaster recovery money that you just kind of dip in and access as a state or territory. It's around, you know, some countries really have to kind of go back to first principles, and and I guess. Um, find that money in the in the heat of it which is which is a little bit scary but it's so glad that there's there's you know financing opportunities like adb out there that are that are looking to kind of
0: fund and and help with that yeah after a disaster you know countries usually do an assessment like a post-disaster needs assessment that's that's nationally led but we support that um, as do others you know colleagues in the world bank and in the un system and and the bilats and then you know that that provides a, a, a framework for for that recovery, because you're looking, you know, recoveries one, two, mm. three, four years, right? Yeah. Um, so it kind of provides provides that roadmap um, and helps c- countries to prioritize what the needs are over the short, medium, and, and long term, and then where we can we can all come in um, and support that.
1: I do have a question though about like I know we've been talking a lot about hard infrastructure and and we know in disasters um you, you know obviously you, you think about mitigating risk to a disaster and some of us you know go straight down to the hard infrastructure of you know flood levies and and, and looking at hard engineering projects but what does ADB do in the soft stuff uh, in terms of soft projects around you know working with communities building community capacity building understanding of risk and awareness with countries do, do you play in that space as well in terms of
0: development programs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, ADB has, uh, provides a lot of support in the social sectors, so education, health, and as you said, and, you know, supporting disastrous management activities as well. You know, that's not about building um, infrastructure generally. I mean, yes, there are hospitals and schools, but it's, it's mostly yep. around that service delivery, right? Yeah. Um, so we do a lot in um, policy-based lending, um, which which helps countries take steps to to reform and to improve service delivery and then there's funding attached to that. Um, social protection is really important in our region. Um, we fund a lot of that. Um, and on, on the DRM side, we work a lot with national disaster management offices and within the sectors on on capacity. So I have a project in in Laos working on climate and disaster risk information. How do how do, how can they better use um, that information to inform investment decisions uh, across across ministries. So it's mm. you know it's not a, it's not a physical investment, but really an investment in people um, and service delivery. It's really important. Yeah, hundred
1: percent. And and I think I was reading in the report as well. There was a, a big focus uh, on gender. We know gender within disasters is a really big thing that we really need to be looking at into the future. And I believe in the report it talks to about women uh, really at, at that at, at greater risk of economic loss, injury, and death in the Southeast Asia region. Uh, you know, from natural hazards. Can you can you kind of go through some examples as well around how you how you're working in that space?
0: Yeah, I think the first uh, entry point there is really to to understand that um, women and girls are at heightened vulnerability and, um, and that you need to, you know, factor that in upfront, that there are gender dimensions um, to risk management, uh, but also that women contribute um, as leaders in building resilience and responding to disasters and emergencies as well. So um, I guess for ADB, we take a really proactive approach Uh, our projects, um, we categorize our projects um, for for gender mainstreaming um, so that we are able to benchmark and to understand, you know, what impact our projects uh, are having and also to raise the bar as well to make sure that we're not just, you know, Mm. we're going beyond just the usual markers of how many uh, women attended or how many women were employed, right? It's not just about participation, but actually um, true engagement and, and how do you promote that um, and um, and recognising the value of that. Mm, definitely. And before we finish
2: up for today, Steve, I just want to ask, what, what are some of the new areas the ADB is looking into in terms of this ever-changing and more challenging world of disaster risk reduction?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, displacement is going to become uh, a bigger and bigger problem. Already um, Asia and the Pacific uh, suffers from the, the highest volume of disaster triggered um, displacement um, globally. And so um, we've been looking at the role of ADB. We're not a humanitarian organization, but we recognize that we can play a really important role in reducing the risk of displacement, as well as um, supporting countries with some of the solutions for for displacement. So that's something that we've been, um, that's why I was in Bangladesh last week, looking at at climate-related displacement. I think, unfortunately, it's going to be something that we, we will have to increasingly deal with. Um, you know, it's going to be internal, predominantly internal de- displacement, you know, within borders of countries. And it's going to require um, all the tools that we have um, to, to look at how we can un- understand it now and then plan for it in the future as well. The implications it's going to have on on cities, right, as more and more people move to cities um, and then potentially are at risk, you know, if you end up in, in some of these informal settlements, um. So there's a lot there and I think this is a you know, a really interesting piece of work, but one that's, that's going to have um, really important outcomes for for the for our countries.
2: Uh, it's, it's such a hard one because, like, dumping piles of cash is just only one, like, small step of dealing with a displacement issue. You've got people moving across borders and it becomes such a complex issue. So, um, yeah, it's just good that the ADB is involved and I'm sure it's going to be a, a collaborative effort between a lot of people. Uh,
1: one thing that I just want to, the last question I want to leave our, our listeners with, uh, Stephen, and, and ask you, and I know it's something that um. Andrew- Andrew and I are really passionate about. Many of our listeners will know. Andrew and I started as engineers and just happened to stumble into this industry and, and and found ourselves in a in a space there where you knew we had a set of capabilities that we could really apply to to the to the problems that we were seeing in the disaster world. And now we've obviously fallen madly in love and we're sycophants. And some people even go to the point of calling us disaster sickos. Wait,
2: love with each other or love with disasters? Lovers with disasters. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: but I, I I get a sense that you know we we know that as you were saying the the, the landscape is changing around us the, the, you know we know that this this field or this area is going to increase we need more people with with capability to be thinking about these problems and working in this space and and what we want to do and i know we we're just talking about gender i know one of the big questions or one of the big conversations sorry in gender is that you know you in a sense need to create role models you can't be what you what you can't see and so one of, one of the the questions that we always want to leave our listeners with is is really kind of under, understanding where some of our guests actually came into this space and what were some of their career pathways so for you how did you end up in this space working for a bank in disaster risk reduction? I mean, it's a bit of an odd kind of, of pairing. In the Philippines. In the Philippines.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I have a public policy, political science background, and uh, I got a um, DFAT had this program, uh, Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development. I, I don't think it's running anymore. Um, but basically they would put young people uh, either at within government ministries or with the UN or with NGOs so mm. I um, I was selected to go to Bangladesh uh, to to work on a peace building program uh, that the government had um, and then when I got to Bangladesh uh, you know eight months later after being selected the country was 60 um, percent affected by a flood mm. and then so they asked me to work on that which which was super interesting and then um, shortly after we were wrapping up on the flood work and I thought I was going off to this peace building project in the Hills, uh, cyclone, uh, category five cyclone hit. So then I was working on, on the response to that. And then, you know, it just went on from there. Um, so that's how, that's how I got into it. Uh, started, uh, in Bangladesh and then, and then ended up, um, moving around, um, working, working with, with governments, on on disastrous management and then because you know adb um works a lot as, as we've been discussing you know at, at that policy level and supporting governments um you know with their public policy it was kind of a, a natural fit um a lot of my colleagues are engineers and um economists but i think recognizing the kind of nature of disastrous mm. management you really need people from all different skill sets right to, to come yes. together so
1: Yes, yep. definitely, and, and and I mean that's something that Andrew and I talk a lot about in terms of m- many people don't see themselves as working in this space, but you actually go well, no, you actually are in a role that holds a lever, uh, and and even though you don't work in this space day to day, the industry you work in will come into in, come into an interaction with disasters, and you, and you will hold hold a key to the to the uh, to the to the solution, but also it sounds like you're a bit of a, a lightning rod for disasters, so Andrew and I might
2: make sure that we stay away from you in future so we don't. <laughs> find ourselves in hot water. <laughs> well, I think it's been heaps to cover today and I think it's just fascinating to learn how a, a bank that's kind of owned by member states is doing so much work in terms of actually progressing some of this really important and vital work in the Asia-Pacific where it is. It feels like the center of the world and it really is in so many ways, but also so disaster prone and um so many challenges ahead for this for this region so thanks for sharing your experience and thoughts with us today and we'll add uh, a link to the adb and the strategy on our website so listeners can jump on there at me myself disaster.com and check that out steve goldfinch thanks for joining us on me myself and disaster
0: great thanks for having me
1: us again next time on Australia's Leading Disaster Podcast as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks
0: for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.